We've come, uh, come a long way in Romans, and we're entering in probably what I would call the premier chapter, uh, not so much for the book of Romans, but certainly for our life as Christians in our ministry and our relationship with each other. I don't know of another verse in the Bible, another passage in the Bible, that probably I use more in everything that I do in my life. And uh, last week we looked at the end of chapter 14 and studied the probably the single greatest aspect of our walk with God, uh, our faith and the process that we go through in getting to the point where we can trust God. We talked about our, our ability to go through life, trusting by faith, what he tells us in his word. We focused on the life of Abraham, and I showed you how that Abraham's life is such an incredible picture of an incredible study of each of us. We all go through our trials and our tribulations. We all go through a process in life. I'm going to show you that process before we're finished today. But uh, we all go through the process of our trials and our issues. And when I showed you last week Abraham's life, I basically gave you a, an incredible outline for you to put in your own life. That you could almost go back and study it almost in the format that I gave you. And yet... <clears throat> At the end of that study, you'll not find the life of Abraham. You'll find your own life, as I found my own life. We saw how he goes from chapter 12, where he first shows up, and uh, he can't trust God for anything. And then we find in chapter 22, where at that point, he trusts God for everything. The incredible journey of his life that pictures our struggles as we go through this life. And then we built that whole story and the whole sermon around the key verse. And it's the last verse in that great chapter, and it simply says this, For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And we talked about how that, you know, we as Christians, many times we have, we have non-biblical concepts about things. We talk about it a lot on Thursday night as I, I have to redefine a lot of things for us. Uh, from the Bible, from what Christianity has defined them to be, that's not really true. And we think, when we think about sin, we always think about something that somebody does. We always think about adultery, murder, rape, stealing, lying, gossip, sowing discord. In reality, that's not, in the Bible sense, really sin. I know that it's sin, but that's where we usually define it as sin. In reality, sin never starts with what we do. And I think that's the biggest mistake that most of us read. I was coming through my files. I keep everything. I, I'm always looking for sloppy people who I myself am one. Just spilled water over my shirt. But anyway, I'm always looking for things that I can use. I, I got a file probably that's 20 inches thick of material over the years that I have, that I have just amassed and I hang on to it. It says there's things that I use from time to time. Obviously, after 20, 30 years, you forget a lot of it. And I came across this uh, this week, and I thought, wow, what a, what a great thing this is. And I don't remember where I got this. Uh, somebody wrote this a number of years ago, and it was titled simply, What is Sin? And I want to read this to you because I think that coming from 14 to 15, and we talked about, the Bible says that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. We need to really begin to grasp and understand how this thing works. Now, here's what it says. Sin is to feel a secret pride in success, training, or appearance. 
It is to feel bitterness over what someone has told you about the success of another. Sin is a hard, sarcastic, uh, or, uh, sarcastic or unyielding spirit. It is a touchy, bitter, sensitive spirit, resigned to attract the attention of the opposite sex, to say and do things, to attract attention to self by what we wear or how we act. It is a constant complaining and a desire to quit trying to do what's right. It is, an abu- it is abusive acts to sell for others. It is a deceitful or an elusive spirit uh, that seeks to create false impressions, to show and depict flaws, and to criticize others, all the while to make oneself look better. Sin is a lustful wandering of eyes, a chic shirking of duty or responsibility, a tendency to retaliate when crossed or permitting things in your life for yourself, but you simply do not permit in the life of others. Sin is an uncleanliness in thought and desire. It is a joke that masks the hurt you intended toward others. It is our unwillingness to put out for others unless personal advantage is involved. It is to, uh, it is to uh, uh, show partiality to certain people or classes or denominations in your dealing. Sin is always thinking of what might have been if certain things hadn't happened. It is the unthankful appreciation attitude toward your lot in life. It's living in constant fear of failure. It is taking an unmerciful attitude toward those who do fail. Sin is putting on a false or exaggerated humility or imagining how others are praising you or speaking well of you. It is straining at the truth, showing an apathetic attitude toward being caught in sin or shirking responsibility. Sin is the feeling of nervousness or envy when you watch someone do something that you think you should be doing because you're better at it and can do it better than they do. Now, folks, honestly, if we would all apply that to our lives this morning and look at that and understand that, none of us would be left standing. All because of a lack of faith to trust God in what he says. I think I want you to notice about what I just read. Not one thing in that writing was anything that anybody did or committed. Did you see that? It wasn't a list of sins, but rather a description of what sin is. Because sin starts with an attitude. That's why the Bible says the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. Before he got to the place where he did not believe in God, that sin started in his heart. The Bible says that whoso lusteth after a woman in his own heart has already committed adultery with her. Why? Because the sin starts in the heart. Bible says that if you hate your brother in your heart, you're already a murderer. Why? Because sin starts in the heart. You see, these things that I listed, these things that I listed, that's our old sin nature that's in each of us. That when we don't deal with it biblically, it produces and provides the outward things that we call sin. Sin starts in our heart with an attitude long before it ever manifests ourself in our lives. And today I want to try to make the, the bridge between chapter 14 and chapter 15. I want, to, I want to show you how these two go together. Last week we looked at the end of chapter 14 and studied probably the single greatest aspect of our walk with God uh, and our faith and our process of its growth through the life of Abraham. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. We talked about our ability to go through all of those things and trusting the Lord. Now today, let's look at chapter 15, verse 1, and let's connect the two together as we move on. Look at 15.1. Romans 15.1. We then are, that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. 
let, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We ask you, Father, to help us today. Lord, there's so much that I want to say. There's so many things that I want these people to grasp in their heart who, who are one with me in ministry, who believe in this church, who understand what we're trying to accomplish and what we're trying to do. And Lord, there's so many things I as a pastor want to put into their hearts today that may help them even grow better. But Lord, uh, you have to be the author of all of that. Lord, if I said what I feel today, I'd just be jibble-jabbering and wouldn't make any sense because it so overwhelms me sometimes, the task that lies before us as a church. Most people today do not see the hour in which they live. They do not understand the urgency of the time uh, that we have. And Lord, uh, we never want as a church to fall into that, that elusiveness and that lethargic attitude that we do not see and understand the times that we have and to live and what God has for us. So help us today. And Father, we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the first thing I want you to see here is the connection between the two chapters. It says here in 15.1, we then that are strong out the barely infirmities of the weak. We then. He's talking about what he's already said, and now he's bringing it into where chapter 15 is. And without a doubt, the number one verse that I keep before me and use more probably than any other verse in ministry, is verse 1. It's a standalone verse. I mean, you can use it in every aspect of your ministry when you're working with people. It is the concept that you ought to have in the back of your mind that whatever you do with people, <clears throat> however you view ministry, however you view whatever you do, it ought to be viewed through this verse. But in the context of chapter 14 and 15, as we've already seen, it deals with a weaker brother We've already started, uh, uh, studied last time uh, when he's weak in the faith. But without a doubt, one of the greatest single concepts of the Christian life that you're ever going to find. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. And then the last part of the verse, and not to please ourselves. Now I want to take <clears throat> this verse for a few moments <clears throat> and I'd like to develop it. I'd like you to show you the full range of motion of this verse, so to speak. But I want you to keep in mind from this day forth in your life, and I know that probably won't happen for most of you, but some of you it will, this great principle, that we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now let me talk to you about where this thing starts. This thing starts long before you ever get to church. This principle starts in your own home. It starts in your own home. You say, how does that work? Well, it starts with husbands with their wives. The verse says, "Ye that are strong ought to bear the infirmity of the weak. Don't you understand that the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, that the wife is the weaker vessel? You know what most husbands do? Most husbands in most married relationships, they exploit the weakness of their wife. They don't help them. They'll use it as an alternative or a divisive thing in their life. You see, it starts in your own home. Colossians chapter 3, verse 19, I think it's a great principle. It says, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Now, why in the Bible is there a verse that says husbands are to love their wives, but they're not to be bitter against them? You know why that is? 
Because the Bible takes the position that you as the strong one ought to lead your wife who is the weak one. And the truth of the matter is, wherever your wife is spiritually is where you have led her to be. Biblically, you have no complaint against your wife in most cases because she is simply a product of what you have led her to be. And I've said it many, many times and I'll continue to say it. Everything rises and falls on leadership. You know, I've, I've, I've been through the ministry for many, many years. And I, I, I made some observations. Now, I want to tell you something. There are some bad women in life. There are some women that you best stay away from. But compared to bad men, they're very few. And I found that uh, there are bad women. And when you find bad women, let me tell you, based on the principle I'm about to give you, you find a bad woman, you better stay 100,000 light years away from her. Because when a woman's bad, she is really bad. And I'll tell you why that is. I don't know if you ever noticed it or not. Did you ever realize, and I've told you this before, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, when Jesus came the first time, you know that there wasn't one woman that ever rejected him? You'll find scores of men who rejected him. But you'll never find one woman in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John who ever rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and said, I want nothing to do with him. You know why that is? Women were attracted to him. Women were drawn to him. Do you know why that is? Because they saw in the Lord Jesus Christ exactly what every woman as the weaker vessel is looking for. They saw in his life, in his character, and the things that he did, and the way that he dealt with people, and the way that he dealt in all the circumstances, they saw exactly what God has put into a woman that she wants to have in a man. And that's why many men dumped him. Many men wanted nothing to do with him. You'll not find one woman in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John who ever rejected who he was because he stands as the model why I tell you, that's why I tell you many, many times, if you're looking for a prospective mate and you're a young lady, don't marry the guy. Marry the Christ in the guy. And if you don't see the Christ in the guy, then don't marry him. You're in an illusion that, that, uh, that uh, you know, that uh, you can change him or you, once you get him in your control or whatever the circumstances. It doesn't work that way. I found this to be true. Most people who go through their life and are not good leaders and don't, have, don't learn how to lead, after 10 or 20 or 30 years, you don't turn them around to be a good leader. And it's one of those things where everything rises and falls on leadership. And when the Bible says, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, that verse is not in the church. That verse goes all the way back to a husband leading his wife and being the right kind of example for her and leading her the way Christ wants her to be led. And then it doesn't stop there, does it? The next place it goes is moms and dads with their children. You realize that your children are the weaker vessels in your family? They are totally dependent on you for everything. They're dependent on you for their food. They're dependent on you for their clothing. They're dependent on you for their safety, their comfort, uh, their well-being. God gave them to you as parents. He lent them to you for you to raise them up and train them up that they might, your prodigy of your Christian family may go on and on and on. 
Moms and dad need to provide the strong leadership together that they have. You remember when we came through child training classes a number of years ago, and it's in a book form back there now, and I know it's still on tape. I gave you a great verse and built the whole aspect around that. And it's a verse that in most cases, when you first look at it, or you've heard it preached, it's never preached in a real context. It's in Proverbs 29, 18, and it simply says this, where there is no vision, the people perish. And now we use that, and it's, it's okay to do that. As a pastor, uh, I need to give you a vision. Because if you have no vision, then we're going to perish. We're not going to get the job done. We're going to get all out of whack and, and messed up the whole concept of things. The bottom line is that there has to be vision. But in the context, if you look at it, the vision is not the church. The vision is children. And parents need to understand that their children are the weaker vessels. And ye that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. If you'll take that concept all the way down to your marriage and to your children, you will change your family and change your marriage. You've got to, the Bible says, and not to please yourself. There lies the problem. We have too many things in our life that we do that we want to please ourselves that we'd ever get around to bearing the infirmities of those that are weak. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. What's your plan? What's your vision for your child? Do you have one? I mean, if I sat you down right now and gave you a piece of paper and said, you know what? Write down your vision for your child. I don't care how old they are. Right, if they're under your roof, write down the vision, the plan that you and your wife has. Is your plan to bring them to youth group every other Thursday night? Is that your plan? What is your plan? Do you have a plan? You know why you don't have a plan? Because you have no leadership. And you know why you're going to lose your kids? You know why you're going to have tremendous problem with them when they get 17 or 18 or 19 that you can't control them and you've got to barter with them now to get them to do what's right because leadership has failed. Now I know that we're talking about this in the light of ministry and that's where we're going, but you better understand something. If you're a husband here this morning, your first ministry is your wife. And if you're a mom and dad here this morning, you have children, your first ministry is your kids. And the reason why some of you will never make it into ministry where you take this first to other people, because you can't learn to take it in your first ministry. Just the way it is. I visited with a psychologist this week. Not for myself. <laughs> I never miss an opportunity to get involved in something that I can learn something from. And I have an individual that I'm working with at this particular point has got some severe problems. And they wanted me to go with them to an appointment with their psychologist. Now, I, I just, I, I wasn't going to miss that chance. I love sitting down and listening to what, how the unsaved world approaches things in life. And I, I, it was the greatest experience of my week, really. Now, this psychologist was a woman. No offense. I mean, that's fine. But she's as far away from God in the Bible as you can get. Four or five, six or seven times when she said something, no, after she knew I was a pastor and I had come in with this individual, she looked at me and apologized for going against what the Bible teaches or what the Bible believes. It didn't bother me. I was just there to learn. And I marveled that, that even though this woman is unsaved, she doesn't have any inkling of God. 
She doesn't believe the Bible has anything. In fact, I guarantee you, if we sat down and talked for a while, her big issue is religion will be the problem that puts you over the edge. I could tell just by the time I talked with her that she thought that if you're too religious, then you're out of your mind. And you mark that down because that's what they're going to use to lock us all up. Well, lock you up. They won't lock me up. Lock you up. <laughs> but I sat there, and this person, this individual, started laying out their problem. And I got to tell you, I was pretty impressed with this lady for one sec. She's a... She, she, she's like me. She's a, she's, there's no middle ground. She, she put the bullet right between the eyes. And this individual was whining about their, their, you know, their, their wife and their family that they had lost and all these things and uh, going on and on and on. And she said something, and I had to catch myself because I almost said amen. <laughs> I thought for a minute she was just shamming me and she'd been listening to my tapes. She looked at this individual and she said, you know what? I know you want to change your wife. I know you want to change your family. But you need to understand something. You can't change your wife or your family till you change yourself. I said, amen. (laughs) That was some good biblical advice given by a very unbiblical person. And I'm telling you, what's your plan? Everything rises and falls on leadership. And it's a situation where you've got to understand that this is how it works in the body of Christ. It's the same concept. You and I who are strong, mature Christians. And I know maturity comes on different levels. But if you've been, you, you, you've been in the Bible, you have a handle on biblical principles, you, we, you and I ought to be helping the weaker Christians get to a place of maturity. We ought to be leading them, not stifling them. This is why I push 100% of the time, 24-7, 365 days of the year. For every person in this church who claims to be mature and claims to have a relationship with the Word of God, and you're not a newbie when it comes to Christianity, that gets you to the place of maturity where you can fulfill uh, verse 1, and that is working with younger Christians to help them grow, because our job is simply that. The primary mission of any New Testament Christian is Romans chapter 15, verse 1. There are no exception clauses. There are no, this does not mean you. Like it or not, deal with it or not deal with it. The bottom line is the only reason God saved you and put you into a process to grow you up spiritually is so that you could get to the point of spiritual maturity where you could take what you learned and help somebody else. That's it. If you don't, at some point, or you stop, you will fall back into that lethargic attitude of Christianity where you just miss the whole point of what God's trying to do, and you lose your purpose, you lose your perspective, and you lose your passion. Scores of people getting saved, lives and marriages being put back together, and all people can see is their own sorry, negative life without any purpose. That's where it goes. Hey, like it or not, You take the ministry of people one-on-one out of your life or you never get there. And let me ask you a question. What's the point of all this? Why are we here? If we're here to make an impact in somebody else's life, to take what we have and give it to somebody else, you that are strong out the bear and the affirmative of the week and you're mature and you're not doing that, what's the point of being here today?
I'll give you a great example. It's all fresh in our memory, and that's Memorial Day picnic. Anybody notice anything last Monday? Maybe you never thought of it in the terms. I, I do look at things a little weird. That's why I went to a psychologist this week. <laughs> but anybody notice anything? I remember a time when we had Memorial Day picnic, and its intended purpose was to have a good time for you. I can remember me standing up and saying, you know what, I want to do this for you. You do so much for us, the church buys the meat, pays for just about everything. You bring a few little side dishes in. But the bottom line is something that I initially wanted to do because I wanted to give you a day where you didn't have to do anything. You didn't have to fix anything. You could come and we'd feed you. The leaders would help me cook it. We'd get it all done. And you could just go out and have fun and do whatever you want to do. That's still there, but boy, has it changed. I don't know if you noticed it last Sunday, but last Sunday on Memorial Day weekend when everybody's out of town and everybody's gone and churches are traditionally down, we had over 220 people in church. Memorial Day picnic, I counted 230 people that came through the food line and then there was probably 30 people that came later after that. I had four couples and five or six singles sit down with me and talk about throughout the process of the day where they're at with God and what they need to do and and talk about who really was key in their life that got them there and looked around. I got 8 o'clock on Tuesday morning, my phone started ringing with a couple that said, we really need to get some help. We really need to get our marriage on track. We were there Sunday, we were there Monday, and this is what we're looking for. Is there anybody that can help us put this thing together? I got a phone call before. I couldn't even go to the ball field at the time I was supposed to be there. Because I got another phone call from another couple. They're just, they're just gruntled. They're upset. They're, they're, they're disillusioned. Now, why is that? I'll tell you why it is. They see this place as a place of hope. They see this place as a place that they can get help in their struggles. Somebody cares. A sense of genuine love of God and of each other. I don't know how many times I've sat down with a couple that some of you are working with. And they're still struggling with things. When you get into problems in your life, you know what the first thing that happens? You think you're the only one that's in those troubles. That's a normal thing. You get overwhelmed by everything. I don't know how many times the thing that I've used in counseling with couples are the very people who are working with them. Somebody will say, well, you know what? We're really at this point, this point, this point. You know what I'll say? I'll say, you probably don't know this, but the very couple you're working with came in about three years ago, and they were worse than you are. You know what? They can't believe it. You know why they can't believe it? Because they weren't here three years ago and saw you in your goofiness. They now see you as a trophy of God's grace. And that's exactly how I view it and exactly how I use it. I use your own life and testimony of when you walked in those doors and you didn't love your husband, you didn't love your wife, your kids were a mess, everything was up and down in your life. You had no hope, you had no vision, you had no purpose, you had no perspective. Your life was a wreck. And by the grace of God, God changed your life. And now not only do I give them the principles of the book, I use the principles of your life. Time and time and time again, I'll say, you know that person that's worked with you, that couple, they went through some, they were worse than you are. Hey, honey.
Danny, you think he's a nut now? You ought to see the guy that's worked with him when he came in. He was a bigger bozo than he ever thought about being. I embellished a little bit. Guy told me Sunday morning when he called, or Tuesday, uh, Tuesday oh, last night when he called. He said, you know what, I've never, I've never been to your church for Sunday. And we came out, or, and we came Monday. And he said, you know what impressed me? When all those kids went out there and played ball, nobody knew me from Adam. And the guys that were playing ball made me feel like I had been there all my life. I can't teach that. I don't have any books in the Bible or any classes up my sleeve that teaches that. You know how that happens in your life? By you allowing God to transform you. That you that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. You see those people out there? You see those people that, that are out there by themselves that nobody knows? Hey, come on. You ever been somewhere where you didn't know anybody? And you automatically feel like you're out there in the left field someplace. Well, that's where he played. <laughs> Pretty good on my part. <laughs> but you already feel like you're, 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 you're timid. You don't know what's going on. What it feels like, not just to have one, but a group of guys come around and, and make you part of the camaraderie and put you in there and get to know your name and get to talk with you. And by the end of the time, he said, you know what? That was the greatest single event, he says, in, in, in all my life since I've been saved. I actually got to a place where I felt like somebody really cared. I can't teach that. I can't teach that. But what a blessing that is. What a blessing that is. You see, the reality of the Christian life, <clears throat> I know you all have jobs, and some of you are pursuing careers, and that's a good thing. Some of you are going to be doctors. Some of you are nurses. Some of you are nurses. Some of you are great mechanics. Some of you work for the railroad. Some of you are police officers. Some of you are lawyers. Some of you are farmers. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are electricians. Some of you are pipe fitters. Some of you work in construction. Some of you are separate secretaries. Some of you are analysts. Some of you are, are a musician. Some of you are a receptionist. And when you go through that in life, and that becomes everything that you do nine to five or whatever it is, seven days a week or five days a week, you get the understanding and you kind of get the false idea that that is what God has called you to do. And that's not true. The reality of the Christian life is the fact is that none of those things, if you do that or whatever you do, that's not your job. <clears throat> and that's not your career. If you understand the model in the Bible after you get saved, you are a tent-making missionary. Read the account sometime in Acts chapter 18 verse 3. Two of the key couples that Paul had in this ministry was Priscilla and Aquila. They were a husband and wife team. And they started churches. And they changed people's lives. It was Aquila and Priscilla when Apollos in Acts chapter 19 was screwed up on his doctrine. that pulled him aside and straightened him out. They got a church in their home. He's a pastor. But when you read over there in Acts chapter 18 verse 3, you find out, you know what they're doing? They're tent makers. And when Paul came through there, he says, because we were of like occupation, Paul spent time with them making tents. That's how he did what he did. When he needed money, he, he went back to his trade as a tent maker. Aquila and Priscilla had a church in their house, but their occupation was tent makers. Your job, your career, 
It's not whatever you do. That's the tent-making process that God has put in your life that you earn a living, support a church, and then use it for your ministry as you reach out. What a foreign concept that is today. Let me tell you something, folks, and you better listen to this. The devil will give you every dream you ever had. He'll give you every desire of your heart that you ever wanted to be. He will give you every, every desire and every dream and every fantasy. And he'll let you make millions of dollars. And he'll let you do everything in life that you want to do just so he can get you out of the mindset that you lose the aspect that whatever you're doing has nothing to do with eternity, but it has everything to do with your ministry that is your eternity. Your job and my job is to grow to the place in our lives where we bear one another's burdens. Ye that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves but by investing our lives in other people's lives. Bible says you get to that point by growing, as I gave you last week, Romans chapter 4 verse 12, in the steps of faith. I showed you those steps last week. You learn to walk by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. <clears throat> Again, as last week, though I didn't get into the detail of it, <clears throat> I draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. A great passage where it says, For when the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full of age, even those by whose reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Strong meat in the Bible is a picture of the Bible doctrine, knowing your Bible, knowing how to use your Bible. <coughs> milk in the Bible is your inadequacy. It's the fact that you may be saved, but you just deal <coughs> with the basic concepts. And he said there were people there, <coughs> just like there are people here, just like there's Christians all over this world. For the time you ought to be teachers. But the time you ought to be dealing in somebody else's life, what do we do? We have to go over the same basic problems that you had five years ago. He says, strong meat belong to them who are full of age, spiritual maturity, who by reason of use, using the Bible Taking what I give you and doing something with it. Having your senses exercised. To discern both good and evil. We become strong Christians through the exercising of our senses that pursues us the absolute key you've got to have that most of God's people never get to. The ability to discern good and evil. Look at verse 2. <clears throat> Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good, the edification. I always, I always get amused how people always are pointing out other people's problems like they don't have any themselves. My dear mother used to say, and my mom, my mom you know, wasn't the greatest Christian that ever lived, but she, she had a lot of good, solid things in her life. And I, 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 she seems to say something that I'm sure your mama said too. 
And it was simply this. If you can't say something nice about somebody, don't say anything. Boy, do we ever need that in Christianity. Our job is to edify each other. Now, that doesn't mean you don't deal with issues. It doesn't mean that when a problem comes up in a church, you don't deal with it. The problem is you've got to be able to discern good and evil. You've got to be able to discern when something, an issue comes up in a church that you've got to deal with it. It may not be popular. You may not like it. I may not like it. Well, it may be confrontational, but you know what? You gotta, that's what you get through the Bible. You discern what is good and what is evil. You discern what is right and what is not. Some things you can let go and deal with. Some things you simply can't. But our job is to edify each other. And even dealing with issues comes out edification. Because the younger Christians see it and they say, wow, we have a church that stands on principles. I just can't believe you want me as your pastor to be a wuss. Maybe you do. But I, don't, I just can't believe that you want me to be some spineless jellyfish crawfish. I just, I don't believe, I don't believe that you really want me to be some weakling up here that you can sway me with whatever you don't like. That I'm take a stand and somebody says, well, if you take that stand, I'm leaving. Okay, folks, we're going to change it now and we're going to do this. And somebody comes up and says, you do that and I'm leaving. Oh my God, what am I going to do? I don't know how to handle this. If I do this, they're going to leave. If I do this, they're going to leave. What can I do? I know. I'll call Bob Alexander. Bob, what would you do? I'd tell them both to leave. <laughs> I don't believe you want a wuss for a pastor. I, my greatest compliment I've ever paid was paid by somebody who didn't like me. <laughs> Number of years ago, uh, he said to me, he said, he came in and he sat down. He said, Bob, he says, I'm leaving your class. And I said, okay. I said, I'm sorry to hear that. And he said, well, I want you to know. He said, I don't like you. And I said, well, you know, sometimes we have character clashes. And he says, well, he says, I don't know what it is, but I don't like you. And I said, that's okay. And most people don't. I'm living to grow with it. And he said, well, he says, I don't. He says, I'm just going to know I got to leave. But he said, I wanted to come in and tell you I'm leaving. But I want to tell you this. He says, even though I don't like you and I'm leaving the church, it's not, it's simply this. I got to tell you this. One thing I, even though I don't like you, I respect you for is the fact that when you got to make the hard choice and it's not the popular choice and people are swaying on both sides, he says, one thing I do respect of you is you don't move your ground. You stay with what you're at. And even though I don't like you, I respect that about you. I think that was the greatest compliment but ever paid me. Now, just because you don't have the discernment to discern what's right and what's wrong doesn't mean that I don't. And it's one of those things where your job and my job is to help other Christians. You see, when you come in and you have issues and you have problems, I know you're in the middle of them, and I know they can be overwhelming. My job, and also your job as a mature Christian, is to discern what you have. What is discernment in its basic form? Let me explain it to you. Discernment in its basic form is a couple comes in, they got tremendous problems. And they're, maybe they're even at the point where they hate each other. And they got all kinds of issues. And they're caught up in all the emotion of it and have been for some time. All they can see is what's wrong with them. Now, discernment is looking at that couple as they see themselves as the problems they have and me looking at that same couple or you seeing that same couple and I don't see the problems, I see the opportunities. Because I've learned over the years that sometimes God has to break your marriage before he can fix it. 
Sometimes God has to break your back before you can walk with him. That's a contradictive thing, isn't it? Nobody gets their back broken, walks. Sometimes God has to break your neck before you look at him. That's a contradictive thing. When you break your neck, you don't look at anybody. You're dead. But spiritually speaking, that's true. And your discernment is the ability to see what God's doing in somebody's life even when they don't see it. That's discernment. And then when you see that, then you you don't hurt them. You help them. You look at the opportunities of growth. That's That's what he gave you last week when I laid out the life of Abraham. Problem after problem after problem after problem. As he saw it. As we looked at it. Opportunity after opportunity after opportunity opportunity. And he became the friend of God. Let me ask you a question. Let me tell you something first. God always has a supply before you and I have a need. Do you know that? That's a thing of faith. I heard a message a number of years ago where a guy asked a question. And I thought it was a strange message when he started out. And I thought to myself, oh boy, here we go. He asked this question. He, he started out and he, he prayed and then he looked at the crowd and he said, folks, let me ask you a question. Which came first? Air or lungs? And I'm thinking, okay, what's next? The chicken or the egg? I mean, where are we going with this? You know what he did? He laid out the greatest expose, walking through the Bible on that little statement that was designed to get everybody's attention. You see, sometimes the best direction is misdirection. When you want to hit them from the left, throw the ball to the right. And that's what he was doing. And his question was, which came first, air or lungs? And the obvious answer is, well, air came before lungs. And his point was, you see, God always had a supply before you had a need. See that thing? And then he took that concept and he walked it through everything in our Christian life. And the end of the message, the end of the time was simply this, folks, God already has a supply before you even have a need. The problem is we don't have the faith to trust God that way because we see our circumstances totally backwards from where it is. Most pastors stand at the top of the spiritual staircase every, every step of the way being a, another level of spiritual growth. Most pastors stand at the top of that spiritual staircase, look down there 150 steps down below, see a bunch of people graveling in their problems and just scream at, their, at them to get up where he's at. That's what most churches are. Most churches are people with problems who cannot get out of it themselves and the pastor, all he does is stand at the top of those spiritual stairs and scream at them and yell at them to get up there where he's at. That's not ministry and that's not a biblical pastor, nor is that biblical maturity. No, what we have to do if we are at the top of those spiritual stairs is we have to go down and help them up one step at a time. We have to help them up one step at a time. One step at a time. I tell couples in marital counseling, you need to help each other off the mountain. Somebody, what does that mean? I'm going to give you an example. Courtney, William, come up here. Put your stuff down. Come here. Come on. Now, Courtney and William... (laughs) 
Don't ever crowd, don't ever crowd out the preacher when he's trying to make a point. <laughs> Courtney and William are on a hike way up in the mountains. And Courtney and William are up there having the time of their life, but then something happens. Courtney falls. And when Courtney falls off a, off a big hill and rolls down the hill, bangs into a tree, you know what she does? She breaks this leg right here. Now, William, being the man that he is and the champion of righteousness, sees her fall, runs over, but he's such a clutch that he falls and he breaks this leg and rips his pants when he did it. What do we do? They're, they're at 9,000 feet. <clears throat> no cell phone works. <clears throat> no nothing. What do they do? They're going to die if something doesn't happen. They're both hurt. They both have broken a leg, which tells me <clears throat> that in marital situations when people come in and they have problems, they both have issues. It usually isn't just the one party has a broken leg. They both have broken legs. So how do they get off of this mountain, which is a representation of the problem that you're in? Here's what I tell them. You know what you do? You get smarter than the problem. Problem is, you're all up in a mountain, and you've got broken legs. And you've got to get off the mountain, or you're going to die. Moral is, your marriage has problems. You both have problems. You've got to get off the mountain of your problems, or you're going to die spiritually. So what would I have him to do? Here's what I do. I get to the place where I put them together, and I would, these two legs are broken. This one on her, this one on him. I'd immobilize them so they could not bend. And then you know what they do? I'd have him put his arm around her, her and him. And you know what I do? Let him use this leg and her use this leg. Put these two together and get off that mountain. Thank you. You may sit down. <laughs> That's how you do it. That's exactly how you do it. You got to help each other. If I can get two couples working at this concept where you get off the mountain by helping each other off the mountain by using the good leg that you have, that's how you solve problems in your life. But somebody has to be, have the discernment to understand that. You know, I've learned that solving people's problems and dealing with people and, and their issues, it isn't hard. It isn't hard at all. What happens is we don't have the discernment because we haven't exercised our senses. Now, you go to a professional marital counselor, and he would spend an hour and for $200, and he would give you every metaphor you wanted to hear. And you know what? You'd go out of there and you'd say, what did he say? <laughs> everybody in this room just understood what I did with that illustration. And everybody here knows now what you got to do. It didn't cost them nothing, and it took me, what, 60 seconds. Well, it's going to cost you something. Because I expect you too, when you finally get married, and I hear he's going to propose by this end weekend. <laughs> that I want payback. <laughs> There's going to be a wedding in the air. Oh, I just came through my ears. Look at verse 3. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproach of them that reproach thee fell on me. That's a great psalm. That's Psalm 69, 9. 
In the context of Psalm 69.9 is Christ dying on the cross for you. But wow, what a great example. You see, I guess if anybody ever was the strong one that bore our infirmities as the weak, it was the Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't it? You know what he says? Christianity is so simple. It is. We want to make it so complicated because we just don't want to do what's right. We want to make it more complicated because we got our own career. We got some vision out there, uh, something we want to do, and it doesn't line up with what God wants us to do. But Christianity is so simple. God just simply says by verse 3, just do for others what I did for you. That's all. That's all. Did you ever notice how unchristian Christians can be in their Christianity? We pretend we're Christ-like, but we're just very, we, we aren't, are we? Simply doing with people what God has done with you and for me. God never hurts you. Everything in your life, good or bad, God did to help you and edify you. That's the way we ought to be. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, that doesn't mean you covet what somebody else has, but in the context of what we're looking at, it does that you don't work to please yourself. You work to please somebody else. Somebody else is struggling, then, then you help them. Then he says a great verse, which we've heard many, many times. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That be the word of God. The principles that I lay out for you every week, every Thursday night, to give you everything that you need. Then it goes said on in verse 6, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He was the Son of God. He was deity. He was very much as much as God as God was. But look at verse 7. Just like you and I, Christ living in you, the hope of glory. Verse 7. But he made himself no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. That's our job. Our job right there is to take on a form of a servant. He made himself of no reputation. Yet, wow, what a reputation he had. You see, the reason he got a reputation because getting a reputation was not his goal. And God gave him his reputation. God gave him his reputation because he took upon him the form of a servant. And look at verse 7. But he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, the death of the cross. You know what? The model for you and me is Christ. Let me give you a couple of things that are that stand out very quickly. You know what the first thing that stands out? Christ had no life of his own. What are you doing with your own life? The model for you and me in the Bible, he had no life of his own. His whole goal in everything that Jesus did. You'll find it in the book of John. John chapter 8, verse 29. John chapter 5, verse 30. His whole goal was to fulfill the will of his Father. How foreign that is to us. How unchristian Christians become in their Christianity. That is such a foreign concept. Your life is not your own. Oh, I'll tell you what. Romans chapter 12 says, I beseech you for, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of the God that presents your body a living sacrifice unto God, which is your reasonable service. I told you this before. We've come through Romans chapter 12. What God calls reasonable, we classify as unreasonable. You know why you'll never get to the place in your life where God wants you to be that you ever fulfill verse 1? It's real simple. You're going to be in charge of your life the whole time. It's going to be your will over his will. You're going to do what you want to do no matter what God wants you to do. 
Christ had no life of his own. His goal was to fulfill his Father's will. Now that's just too foreign for us today as Christians. Look at verse 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. You know, when you and I edify somebody, when you and I bear the infirmities of the weak, when you and I lift up someone who's fallen, here's how it works. You know, one of the things that I try to do when I work with people, when people come over and see me the first time, and I know some of you do this too because we've talked about it, I'll have people come in and they'll have some issues. Sometimes those issues are not their fault. Sometimes they are. Doesn't matter. They have issues. And sometimes those issues are pretty pressing. Now, I'm, I'm not such a fool as I think that I can sit down with somebody in an hour and I can fix their problem. I, I, I teach you this, and I believe this with all of my heart. The longer you wait to fix your issues, the harder it is to fix them. And I also got to tell you this. There comes a time in your life, if you wait too long, you simply can't get them fixed. It's not because God can't fix them. It's because the longer you go without God in your life, the harder it is to get back to God, and God's the only one who can fix them. You give God, you take away from God 20 years of your life and do your own thing and then try to get back to God and see how it works. You'll have ingrained your flesh so much that you control it that it'll never get back to God, even though God is patiently waiting for you to come back. It won't be God. Somebody says, well, God ever quit on me? Never quit on you. But here's the problem. You'll quit on him. And sometimes you quit on him and you don't even know it. So they come in and they lay out their problems and they lay out their heartaches. My only plan is when they leave there is to give them hope. Give them a light at the end of the tunnel. I may not be able to fix their problem in one session, may not fix their problem in six months, but I can tell them that if they do what God wants them to do and they put in the things in their life and do it, that's where their hope is. You remember many people that just got saved came out of a hopeless situation, didn't they? You got to help them. Many people were saved, but they were in dead churches or grew nowhere spiritually. And, and uh, you know what? It's not about whose fault it is. When they come in and they come to this church and they want to get on fire for the God, Word of God and get in the Word of God, you know what our job is, your job is, in edifying them, is to give them hope. Many times they come out of hopeless situations. The people that called me on the phone at the Memorial Day picnic, they're people that had no hope. And when they came to the picnic and they saw by God's design what you guys were doing and what you guys were all about, you know what they, why they called me? Because they saw hope. I don't know what to tell you. Building hope in hopeless situations. Now, I don't know if you picked it up yet, some of you fast-track people, but there's four things in this verse that show you how to build hope. And I want to talk about these things. Now, you're going to see in these things exactly the things that I do in my ministry. The first thing he says here, that things written aforetime for our learning. Last Sunday, I gave you a great example of this. The examples of men and women in the Bible are some of the greatest material that you're ever going to have to fix what's wrong with you. My mother said to me something one time after I got into the ministry. 
she asked me, she said, you know, Bob, she says, <clears throat> she says, let me ask you a question. She says, I know, I, I know the Bible is the word of God, but she says, did it ever bother you <clears throat> why in the Bible there's so many negative things listed? Did you ever notice in the Bible how that <clears throat> there's even dirty things in the Bible, <clears throat> like incest? That he talks about this and he talks about that and he lays it out in graphic detail. She said, it always bothered me that I've heard people that I used to work with talk about the Bible being a dirty book and how that it's no different than any other book. And she said, I, don't, I believe it, but she said, I don't understand it. Could you explain that to me? And I'll say, well, Mom, you've got to understand, first of all, the Bible was never written to be a positive book. Never was. God never intended the Bible to be a positive book. God intended the Bible to be a negative book. Because man is negative toward God. I mean, you only get the positive out of it once you see the negative in it. And yourself. And that's why in the Bible you have every issue, every, I don't know, of a sin, no matter how filthy and vile, from incest to pedophile to whatever you want to put. I don't know of any sin in that Bible that isn't listed in there in graphic detail for the express purpose of, one, showing you how a man gets into it, two, showing you how he has to deal with it, three, showing you how to get out of it, and four, showing him what happens if he doesn't do what's right with it. That's the Bible. Adam, Eve, Abraham, Moses, Joseph, Isaac, the prophets, major and minor, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Peter, Paul, Titus, Timothy, Philemon, uh, the book of Hebrews, James, the book of Revelation. We saw, it third, we saw it Thursday night when somebody asked a question about 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, didn't we? I showed you how 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John impact you as a Christian. Last Sunday, we talked about the life of Abraham. And I walked you through and showed you. This is what he's talking about when he says here, he's talking about the things that were written aforetime. The things in the Old Testament, the people that are in the Bible are in there for our examples and our examples. You're going to find yourself in there. I just gave you a quick model last week with Abraham. And in Abraham's life, you see everything that you could ever hopefully see about where you're at in life. And then what happened? Ha! What happened? I laid it out for an hour and a half last week, and then we came back Thursday night. Somebody asked a question, and what did we do? We squeezed a lot more out of it, didn't we, huh? If you went out of here Thursday night any place but walking out on your knees, there's something wrong with you. So we squeezed it out last Sunday morning. We squeezed it out Thursday night, and that's why I like about Thursday night. It gives us a chance to tweak what we all didn't get to do on, on what I want to do on Sunday. It doesn't happen very often, but it happens. We squeeze it out Sunday morning. We squeeze it out again Thursday night. You know what? If we could take from, from 1 o'clock today to about 5 o'clock tonight, and we could squeeze a lot more out of it. It never ends. So he says the things that were written aforetime. Every issue in life is in that Bible. And it's written there for your admonition that you can get through what you're going through, showing you that you're not the only people on this planet that struggled. Everybody on this planet in the Bible went through tough times. That's the teaching ministry of this church. That's my style of teaching the Bible, using them as examples in a practical way in life. Add to that the wisdom books, Psalm, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Job, and Ecclesiastes. What else could you ever want? What else could you ever need? Other than an attitude to grow and learn. It's all there. Second thing they say in that passage is patience. You ever become a pastor or ever have your own ministry? You need to understand it takes time to do all of this. Helping somebody through the problems and the mistakes of life. Picking you up when you fall. My job is to exercise you. 
I get criticized for it sometimes, but that's the other wuss guy you're talking about, not me. I, I know what an exercise program needs to be. I know how to exercise you. I know how to put stuff on the bar so you stretch those, exercise those senses. Sometimes I'll create scenarios just to watch how you respond to them and then grade you on it. You'll never know when I do or when I don't. I understand how to build people. I've been doing it all my life. One of the things I've learned that you don't get in a hurry. Another thing I've learned that my job is to exercise you, but I never put more weight on the bar than you can bear. I monitor you very closely and give you things to do and watch how you handle it, watch how you deal with it. Chance after chance after chance, people get to get it together. I never hold anything against anybody as long as they want to do what's right. Because you learn that it takes patience. Now, I didn't lay this out for you last week in Abraham, but you need to see this. This will help you. You looked last week, and maybe you picked it up. When you looked at Abraham's life last week, you saw his life in three stages, if you're paying attention. Do you ever wonder why God took the time to put his age in there at the right places? Well, the first time you find Abraham is in 12.4. Remember what happened there? That's when God called him out of the Ur of Chaldees. Why does the Bible take the time to tell you at that time in 12.4 that he's 75 years old? Then in chapter 17, when God really begins to use him, God took time to tell you again that he was 99 years old. At the end of the chapter uh, in 16, he did it again, and he told you how old he was uh, when he listened to Hagar and uh, I told you the time between the two was 13 years where he's out of fellowship with God. And then he dies in Genesis chapter 25 when he's 175 years old. You see what you got? And everybody in this room has the same format. You have an unsaved stage. He was 75 years old. First five, 75 years of his life, he was without God. There was a time in your life up to the point you got saved when you were out without God. Then you know what it took? From when he was 75 years old till he was 99. That's 24 years of going to school to learn to walk with God. 24 years. His school was 24 years. Moses was 40 years. You're going to find that every man in the Bible, every woman in the Bible goes through that same process. And you're going to find out that every person in this room goes through the same process. When he got to 99, God saw fit to use him. He dies at 75 that means he gives 76 years to God. But the thing you want to remember is this. He starts out 75, first 75 years without God. 24 years going to school uh, to trust God. And then at 99 to 175, that's the most fruitful time in his life. Half his life he spent learning what God wanted him to learn. You see, it's not about when you get it together. It's, or it's about do you ever get it together. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. How long it takes is up to you. I mean, you have an unsaved stage. We all were there. And then you have a learning stage. Some of you are in that stage right now. And then you come to a place where you have a ministry stage. That's where you learn, and then you go on from there. And how long it takes is completely up to you. There's no gauge for it. There's no fast track for it. It comes down to what you're going to do with the Bible in understanding and focus that you do not have a life that's your own. 
that your only function in life is not to be famous, not to be this, not to be rich, not to be successful. You're in the world standards, your only goal in life is to be faithful to the Father's will. Then the third thing he says, comfort. Being there for you when you struggle and fall, edifying you. I can honestly say this, that three quarters of my ministry is spent encouraging people in their struggles. That's what, that's what you need, we need to do. That's our job. I can't wait till we get into the concept of 2 Corinthians and we look at the handbook of ministry. I think it's probably the greatest single book in all of the Bible that is really going to bring where all we're at to the next level in ministry. Because it's the book where he teaches us how to minister. And he simply says this in verse chapter 1, uh, verses 3, 4, and 5. Just listen to it. You don't even have to turn to it. But here it is. You want the ministry? You want to know what the ministry is? You want to walk out of here with a definitive verse on the ministry? Here it comes. Here it comes. See how you fit in this. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Watch it. Who comforteth us in all our tribulation. Why? That we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by, com by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounded by Christ. You know what he's saying? He's saying the only you, you learn by God comforting you. You learn by God doing what's right with you. You learn by God comforting you through your tough times how to comfort somebody else when they go through their tough times. <clears throat> Talked about Sean a little bit ago. Been in our church now about, what, four months? But you, some of you saw him sitting back there, never went over and shook his hand. When I said Sean today, you're probably saying, who's he? Who's he? Who's he? A strong Christian, Christian will go through, we go through our, advers, our adversity so we can be in a better mind to help the weaker Christian go through his. What a foreign thought. What a misconcept in Christianity today. Ye that are strong, out the barely infirmity of the beat. As a pastor, it's simply this. Pastors never get this today, never will. It's the day and age that we live in. But a real pastor today, a pastor pastors his people by going through the adversity and the struggles with them. That's what a pastor does. A pastor becomes somebody says, Well, how do you become one with your people? There's only one way you become one with anybody go through something tough with them. You ever notice that in, the old, in World War II and Korea and even Vietnam and even to this day? You got guys who are in World War II together. They haven't seen each other in 60 years. And the first time they meet at a reunion, it's like they never left. You know why? Because born, brothers are born through adversity. That's what the Bible says. A brother is born for adversity. And they go through some of the most horrendous times in their lives. And they go through it sharing it with each other. Getting through it with each other. Helping each other. Encouraging each other. And they did it. Most of them died and went to hell. We're God's people, the aristocracy of heaven. We got called by God, got saved by God. God given us this mind, the word of God, and we can't even do it to each other. What a foreign concept. The pastors become one with their people by going through the suffering with them and then teaching them through that to go through it with somebody else. Then the fourth thing, the fourth thing. It says comfort 
But then we got to look at it in its entirety. It says comfort of the scriptures. And I really love this. You see, my job and your job as a mature leader is to comfort younger people when they're struggling with things and help them, young couples, individuals. Your job and my job is to comfort them. But your job also is in time is to get them to understand that real comfort comes from their own relationship in the scriptures. You got to get in the book. You got to learn how to use it. You got to learn how to use it. You comfort them, but you always point them to the source of comfort, which is the Word of God. You know, I don't know if you ever saw this in the Bible or not. 1969, either 68 or 69, I can't remember, it's been so long. It might have been 70, I don't remember. I can't remember exactly. When I was in the Army, I attended a survival course. I was stationed at Fort Devens, Massachusetts, so my survival course was in the mountains. And uh, what they did is they dropped you in a thousand miles from nowhere, and uh, you had nothing to eat. You had a knife. Uh, Sometimes they dropped you in small groups of three or four, and everybody had one thing that you had to learn to share it. Some guys had a compass, some guys didn't. And we, we had to, you had to navigate your way back, which took about a week. And with nothing to eat, no water to drink, nothing to stay warm on. I mean, you had the clothes you had on your back. Uh, you had, no, it's all you had. And I looked at that, uh, you know, and, and when they taught us all those things, they, they, they talked about the fact that, that the reason why they're doing this is because that as a soldier, there'll be many times that, you're in a, in a hostile environment and the only thing that'll get you through and get you home and get you to survive is the training that we're going to give you right now. How to survive in a situation that is unsurvivable. And I, I and you know, I don't, you know, every, everybody does it. I mean, if you ever saw Air Force pilots or jet pilots, they wear that vest with all the pockets on it. That's their survival vest. They have everything in there to live, to get out of the hostile environment if they get shot down. Commercial airliners, they have them too. I mean, uh, wherever you go, wherever you go. And the idea, you know, I mean, uh, you get on a cruise ship someplace, they have lifeboats. Those lifeboats are stocked with everything. In fact, they look better now than most hotel rooms. They got everything you need to survive. The idea is to get you through some devastation or some travesty until help arrives. And I don't know if you know this or not. Maybe you ain't figured it out and thought about it. But as a child of God, you and I are in a hostile environment. You know why Christians don't make it? You know why some of you won't make it? Very simply and plainly. Because God has given you a survival kit in the Bible, and you never learned how to use it. You'll be like the guy, the eight ball that was in the group that didn't pay attention when the instructor was talking, and uh, pretty soon you're going to come to the place where you're going to get out there, and you're not going to have learned because you goofed off and didn't do it. And you know what? You're going to die out there because you didn't learn how to survive. My job as pastor is to train you how to survive. That's my job. That's my job. God gave you a a Christian survival kit. Did you ever see it? Eight things in your Bible. They're going to help you glean the comfort of the scriptures. That in any horrible, terrible, tragic situation as you find yourself in, you ought to be able to survive. My job is to comfort you as, as a young Christian. 
uh, by my relationship with God, as some of you people comfort others with your relationship with God, but in time, we need to teach you how to sur- get this survival kit of God and get you to survive. That's really what the Iron Man concept is all about in its infant form, basically giving you the foundation to which to teach you how to survive, how to survive. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Bible, the first thing the Bible talks about it being likened to is water. Second thing it's likened to is milk. Second, third thing it's likened to is meat. Fourth thing it's likened to is a sword. The fifth thing it's likened to is a hammer. The next thing it's likened to is nails. The next thing it's likened to is fire. And the last thing it's likened to is a compass. You know, if you have those things, you can survive just about any situation that you're in. You ever notice how that thing works out spiritually in a spiritual aspect? Water. They taught us in survival school that you can last, depending on the environment, two to six days without water. There are some exceptions to that, but the average is in the climate that you're in that two to six days, maybe a week and a half at the most. Without food, meat, you can go a month, maybe a month and a half before you starve to death. The milk there is the picture of the vitamins that you need, the supplements that you need to have. The sword, that's the word of God. That's how you defend yourself and you protect yourself. The hammer and the nails, that's what you build with. You can build shelter with that. You can fix things. You can build things. The fire, the fire is a type of the word of God. You warm yourself. You keep the darkness the way. You scare off the wild animals. You light to guide you in the way that you go, that you can light your way with, and the compass. You're always sure where you're at because you all know the way home, true north. You know, in 1968 or 9, I was told, I, and I, I look back on it and I thought, you know, I always were told, if you don't have a compass, you always know which direction north is, and you check your heading at night with the stars and the daytime with the sun. And I thought to myself, years later, you know, I wasn't even a Christian at the time, I thought to myself, how about that? Even on planet Earth, if you get lost, you've got to go back to the things that God made to find your way out. Incredible. Incredible. I mean, if you've got a compass, the bottom line is simply this. That compass points toward north. You're told in Psalm 75 that God is north. Heaven is north. And I'll tell you what, it put that thing right on the line. Right on the line. Now, you also know, and I talked this about a couple of Thursday nights ago, that there's two norths. I always take kids out, you know, when we get out of church here, and there's a big bright star over in the east there, really not a star at the planet Venus. It looked like a streetlight. And... Uh, and I'll ask kids, I'll say, what is that star? And they'll say, that's the North Star. And I'll say, no, that's not the North Star. You see, they think because it's, they think the North Star is the brightest star. North Star is not a bright star. North Star is not a bright star at all. You've got to know where to look to find it. But if you have a compass and you're going by that compass in your hand, you realize that that compass will put you on a magnetic heading, but it won't be true north. It'll be magnetic north. That compass won't point to true north. It'll get you in a general direction, but it won't point you in the right direction. In a, in a forced march at night when you can, you check your heading not on the compass heading, but you check it on the true north that you see. Isn't it like God that would give you something that man made to hold in your hand that would get you to the wrong north? But God's true north up in heaven is the one you've got to follow? Man will always get you off track. They taught us. 
You face the coming sunrise, north will be to your left. You face the coming sundown, north will be to your right. You always use that, and then you use the stars at night to navigate. And you can get out of any situation you're in if you know how to survive. And if you know that that word of God is likened to water, and it gives you your basic fundamental need, the water of life. When you understand that that Bible is like meat, and that's the doctrine of the Word of God. You understand that that Bible is like milk. That's your supplement, the vitamin that you need. When you realize that you've got a sword, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, that you can defend yourself and protect yourself, that it's like a hammer and nails back there in Jeremiah 23 and Isaiah chapter 9, that you can build things with it. You can build structures, shelter with it. You can build your family with it. And when you look at those nails back there, you know what that nail is? It's called a sure nail. You know what that sure nail is? It's Christ. And you got fire. Thy word is a lamp under my feet and light into my path. You can warm yourself. You can cook your food. You can keep the darkness away. Scare off the wild beast that you get scared of in the dark. The light to guide you to light your way. And then you have a compass. Hey, God has fixed it in that book that there's absolutely no reason why you sitting here this morning as a saved person can't figure out where you're at almost exactly in reference to the coming of Christ. He's given you everything you need to survive. One of my favorite shows on television, I think it's a great show, is The Survivor Man. Every man really likes The Survivor Man. Women watch American Idol. Real men watch Survivor Man. I love this guy. He can get out of any situation. You can learn more about that by watching him for an hour, and this guy gets out of any situation he's in. I saw him fall in ice water in the Arctic when it's 40 below zero and survive. I watched him do everything. I watched him eat everything, do everything, eat big old centipedes, eat snakes, eat lizards, all that stuff. You know, eat, eat everything he can find, you know, bark off of trees and leaves and all that stuff. He eats anything, and he survives. And I thought that many, many times. You know what? He's a perfect example in the world what you and I ought to be as Christians. He survives in hostile territory and places that the average person won't. That's what you and I ought to be able to do. And why can't we? Why can't we? See, God gives you those things so you have hope. That you have hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, and it will, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. You see? Give people hope. Give people, no matter how dark it gets, how bleak it gets, how bad it gets, God wants you and I and saved you and I for a purpose. It wasn't to wimp out, fall down, and die in the wilderness someplace. It was to survive. Do you notice when they were wandering for 40 years in a place that was called the wilderness of sin, that they had no water, they had no food? Do you realize? Do you realize God supplied everything they needed for them to survive that wilderness journey? Well, we're in a wilderness journey, and God will survive everything that we need to survive what we got to do. He that are strong ought to bear the infirmity of the weak, not to please ourselves. In any church, certainly in this one, almost every week, 
There's young Christians coming in, people getting saved, people coming in with heartache, problems, and needing help. And it's up to us to take what God has given us and to help us. Otherwise, as I said earlier, what's the point of it all? What's the point of it all? What's the point of coming, even owning a Bible, climbing and be a Christian and going to church if you're not going to follow the simplest fundamental thing that Jesus told you to do? What I've done for you, do for somebody else. Don't get to the point where you think your life is your own. You have one goal in life and one goal only, 